I just want to highlight a couple this morning because um, I think it's important for us to understand uh, the only reason that we are allowed into heaven is, is through Christ and his sacrifice. But sometimes when you ask people by what standard uh, they're going to be judged or even we can ask ourselves, what standard are we judging others? Um, a lot of people, the first thing they say is that a lot of times they'll come up with the Ten Commandments and they think that so many of them have been kept and that they're able to uh, keep it and you don't have to go too far down that list of commandments to figure out that uh, there's no way anybody could keep even the Ten Commandments, let alone all the rest of the, the law. And um, even with that being said, much of our civil law is based on the Mosaic Law, even today. We have laws that protect marriages against adultery and laws against stealing from other people, laws against perjury, which is lying, things like that. And um, Paul's condemnation of sin, as we've seen in Romans chapter 1, was really not based on their own, his own standard or God's standard, but by what other people tried to justify themselves before God. And uh, one of the, the ways people do that is when they begin to think that somehow they've kept the Ten Commandments. And all you have to do is ask yourself, have you ever told a lie? Well, if you have, you've broken one of the Ten Commandments. If you've ever used God's name in vain, you've broken another one. If you've ever thought of uh, a lustful thought toward another person who is not your spouse, once again, you've broken one of the Ten Commandments. And so you don't have to go too far down that list to understand that you're not uh, all that you're cracked up to be. And that's the reason the law was given, so that it would show us our need of a Savior. But other people, they say, well, okay, okay I don't keep all the Ten Commandments, but um, let me tell you, you know, I, I believe in, in the New Testament. I don't go for that Old Testament stuff. So they say, they point to the teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon of the Mount. And they say, that's what I base uh, my judgment on. And I try to live by the Sermon on the Mount. And my standard is the Sermon on the Mount. And if anybody thinks that way, it doesn't take a very hard or long look at the Sermon on the Mount to realize that we fall way short of the Sermon of, on the Mount. As a matter of fact, in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And a lot of moral people who think themselves to be moral look at that description and they think themselves as being meek or they think themselves as being merciful or pure or peacemakers. And they imagine that they actually thirst for righteousness, even though they're not really persecuted for it. They may believe they are sometimes. And when you stop and you think, does anybody in, embody all of those characteristics? No. The only one that really did was, his name was Jesus of Nazareth. He was gentle in spirit. He mourned for sin. He was meek. He was merciful. He was pure. He was holy. He, he alone embodied righteousness. Not only that, but he suffered for it at the hands of men. And so Jesus has shown what it means to keep the standards of the Sermon of the Mount. And when you stop and you look at him, you realize that we all fall short. 
So maybe it's not the Ten Commandments. Maybe it's not the Sermon on the Mount. Well, some people say, well, wait a minute. You know, uh, I, I don't really own up to living by the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes or whatever. Um, but uh, what about the golden rule? You know, the golden rule. Um, in everything, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That sums up, Jesus said, the law and the prophets in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Um, when you stop and you think about if that's what you're judging other people by and you think that you live by just the golden rule, just stop and ask, have you ever been impatient with someone? Have you ever gotten angry with somebody unjustly? Have you ever accused someone falsely? Have you ever taken advantage of another one's weakness? Uh, the golden rule accuses us. It holds us liable before a holy God. And so even though Jesus kind of summed up the law in that golden rule, we still fall way short. And the last thing some people say, well, I just think that God will be fair. It, in the end, it's all going to work out. It'll be fair play. Uh, that's the Englishman's virtue, it's said. Um, but what about that simple rock-bottom standard of fair play? And when you stop and you think about it, the point is obvious. There's no one who is ever fair completely to other people all the time in all ways. That's just not going to happen. And so when we look at the standard by which people are judged, we know that God looks at a different standard. He looks through all the outside stuff, and he looks at the heart. It doesn't matter whether you're religious. It doesn't matter whether you come to church. It doesn't matter any of those things. He looks at your heart, and he sees it for exactly what it is, something that needs a Savior. Um, some of you may have read sometime in your life a book that was published by Thomas Harris back in 1969. It was called I'm Okay, You're Okay. Anybody remember that book? Well, there was a, a conference going on about that time dealing with Reformed theology. And one of the speakers at the conference was John Gerstner. He was a professor emeritus at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. And he used that book, I'm okay, or you're okay, I'm okay, you're okay. He used that book as a kind of a place to start his message at this conference. And um, they said that... He used the illustration when him and his wife were in Kashmir. They were returning from a shopping expedition in this little tiny boat on this waterway. And they had just pulled up besides a, a large uh, kind of uh, barge near the shore. And they said that all of a sudden in the boat they heard this bump. And some of the water splashed up and got the, uh, got the, the, the husband and the wife wet. And all of a sudden, the, the uh, driver of the boat, the captain of the boat, this small little, this little canoe almost, um, he just got just irate. He just started yelling at him. And he, he said to his wife, see how excitable this little fellow is, this little boat master here? We get a little water splashed on us, and you know, you think that this was going to be a, a catastrophe of the first order. And he was trying to calm the man down. And uh, he's, you know, it's okay, Kushra, it's okay, it's okay, he kept on saying. And uh, finally, the, the owner of the boat got so excited that he broke out of his dialect, which they weren't really understanding, obviously. And he just said, it no okay, it no okay. And he yelled at them to get out of the boat. And they were right there on the shore. 
And they thought, man, this guy's really upset. Well, the owner threw them his grandchild and climbed out himself. And when they turned around, literally the boat was gone. It sunk. The hull had been punctured. And the undertow had just basically swallowed that whole craft. And he said that basically that boat sunk and it finally turned up out there in the, the, uh, the, 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 the sea after the undertow was done with it. And when you stop and you think about it, here were two people that they didn't understand the message that their boat captain was trying to give them. And they just thought, boy, he was upset because they got a little water on themselves. Um, and the message of Romans is, I'm not okay. You're not okay. That's the true biblical message. As a matter of fact, no one on this earth is okay. And see, the sooner we admit that we're not okay, then you understand that we have to turn to the one who knows that we're not okay. The God who created us. The one who offers a way of salvation for us anyway, even though we don't measure up. That was the whole message of our Vacation Bible School this past week. Weird animals, it's kind of a weird theme. But it was the understanding that Jesus loves us anyway. We all got our little quirks. We all got our issues. But you know what? The love of Christ broads and crosses all those uh, boundaries. And so we want you to understand that Jesus does not excuse us. He forgives us. He calls us sinners. He says, I've come to call the righteous. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Excuse me, in Luke 5.32. And the most important thing as we begin this message for you to know is that Jesus is able to save you from your sin. That's the most important thing in life that you can understand, that Jesus is able to save you from your sin. And the second most important thing is to know that you require it. See, if you just know that Jesus is able to save you from your sin, that doesn't do you a whole lot of good. The second thing is is that it applies to you. And so when we look at this this message here in Romans 2, we've been looking at the danger of false assurance. And I just want to read the text for us once again so it's fresh in our minds, and then we'll pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, this is Paul speaking, and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you are yourself, are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? While you say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you abhor idols? Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. For if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. 
nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And praise is not from man, but from God. We looked last time when we were together about the idea that they had these privileges in their mind when they were Jewish. They understood that they were part of the nation of Israel. That was a pretty big deal, that they possessed the law of God, that they had this sign of circumcision upon them. And so they really wanted people to understand that it's important that you have these kind of uh, uh, things in your life. And so they wanted them to understand that there was an assurance of their ancestry. Just because they were Jewish, they said, oh, God's going to love us just because we're Jewish. Now, God does say that his chosen people are the Jewish people. There's no getting around that. That's what the word of God says. But just because they're his chosen people doesn't mean they're all going to be granted salvation. That's not what that's saying. And see, you may be on my team, but you may not play in the game. You may sit on the bench, even though you're still on the team. All right? There, there's certain standards that have to be followed to enter into heaven. And just being a Jew isn't good enough. And they were called by different names. He says, are you being a Jew? They were called by the Hebrew name because of their language. They were known as Israelites. A lot of people call themselves uh, Israelites today. Uh, or, or Jews. And it was a matter of their nationality. They were looking for assurance in their nationality. And so... They were, we saw last week, that they, or two weeks ago, that they were, had this assurance of the religious man and they boasted in their lineage and in their law and their Lord and their leadership. But today I want us to move on because there's a second thing that they look to. And that is basically knowledge. They had a false assurance of knowledge. And that's what he says here, beginning in verse 17, the last half of verse 17. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew, that's their ancestry, he says, and rely on the law. Rely on the law. Well, what does he mean by that? Rely on the law. The law represented not only the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Mosaic law, but also they were called the Psalms and Proverbs and the Prophets. There was other books besides those five books. It encompassed basically all of God's revelation up until that time. And it included everything from his covenants to his blessings to his promises, everything. And they knew it. They knew it better than anybody. And that's why God was holding them account. That's why God was saying, look, it's not good enough just to know the law. What did they learn about the law? It says they rely on the law and boast in God. They know his will, it says in verse 17. And they approve the things that are essential or that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. When you stop and you take that all by itself, they loved to recite passages of Scripture, showing off, knowing that they had memorized certain things. They'd recite Psalm 147, verse 19 to 20. It says, God declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. See what they, they picked and they chose what verses they wanted to kind of boast about 
And usually they were boasting about Israel, those verses. So they were really not boasting in God. They were boasting in themselves. And since it was impossible for anybody to keep the law entirely perfect, the rabbis began teaching that some just had to learn about the law. You didn't really have to keep it. If you knew about it, if you could learn it, if you commit it to memory, somehow that was good enough for God. He didn't actually expect you to live it out. Because they were the chosen people to be the custodians and the recipients of God's law. God gave his law, his word, to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And so it's important that we understand that the Old Testament makes it pretty clear that they didn't do what they were expected to do, what God expected them to do. He granted to them his law, and what did they do? Rather than be a good steward of it, rather than learn it and apply it to their own lives and tell others about it, they hoarded it. They said, oh, this is ours. God gave this to us. It's not for you. It's not for the rest of the world. It's, it's, it's not, you know, it's just for us. And when the ungodly Jews would boast in God, really they were boasting in themselves. They were saying, oh, yes, God, you know, we, we boast in God because he chose us. You know, there's some Christians today that kind of come close to that. They boast in their Christianity and they're always putting everybody else down, but really they're not boasting in God, they're boasting in themselves. They're boasting in their own self-righteousness. They're looking down their religious noses at everybody else saying, oh, I would never do that. Oh, we've got to stay away from everybody that's not in the church because uh, you know, we might get dirty. That's their mentality. And that's not pleasing to God. And so it says there they also know his will, but they didn't obey it. What's that called? What's that called when God tells you to do something and you don't do it? It's called sin. Okay, it's a word sometimes we don't hear much. It's called sin. It's not called a mistake. It's called sin. And when we sin, God says we need forgiveness. That's why he provided his son to die on a cross, that we could be forgiven for our sins. And so they knew that God required certain things. They knew what God didn't want them to do. They were clear on that. And yet, they went ahead and did it anyway. And they didn't do the things that God asked them to do. Sounds kind of like the Christian life. Do you ever have a week where you do everything you're not supposed to do and desire to do and not do the things that God wants you to do? I think we all have those days or those weeks. And I think it's important that we understand that that's that's very clear. It says there that they were also willing to approve the things that are essential. That word approve has the idea of finding a piece of ore and, and kind of approving that it's actually metal, it's actually gold, or it's actually silver or copper, something worth of value. The Jews had the means not only to know what was right and wrong, but they also had the means to discern what was the most important part of God's law just like we do as Christians. Sometimes I hear Christians arguing, you know, silly fat. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Who cares? The Bible doesn't tell us. So why argue about it? There's some things simply we do not understand as Christians. There's some things that God says, you know what, I'm not going to tell you. They're mysteries. And so we need to be focused on the right things. 
But the Jews were also continually being instructed out of the law. That word instructed there really comes from the word we get the word catechism from. Have you ever been to catechism? How many of you have been to catechism in your life? You know what I'm talking about. If you came out of the Catholic Church, you went to catechism. If you went to church at all, usually it was kind of Sunday school. But a lot of times I remember in in the Catholic Church when I went to catechism, I didn't have to take a Bible because we didn't really study the Bible. We studied the doctrines of the church. We studied what they told us to study. And so I didn't learn anything about the Bible. I learned about what they said we should know about God and the church and different things. And see, sometimes that's not always accurate. Sometimes those two don't line up. And there's a lot of religions like that. I'm not just picking on Catholicism. There's a lot of religions that are made up that way. That they say certain things, and then you ask them, well, where's that at in the Bible? A good way to know whether a religion is true or false or, or on the right track or not is simply ask the person, chapter verse. Show me in the Bible, chapter verse, what you're telling me to do. Where does it tell me to do that in here? And you can kind of really quickly isolate those who may be teaching error. So it has that idea of being instructed. Now, by the New Testament time, when Paul's writing this, remember, a lot of the Jews, especially the religious leaders, had basically in practice accepted the Greek view of wisdom. The Greek view of wisdom basically said, well, you can just know all this stuff. They equated wisdom with knowledge. Have you ever met somebody that was really, really smart? And after you talked to him for a while, you thought, boy, that person's really, really smart. And then maybe you actually worked with that person. And they, they, couldn't, they couldn't do anything if, if their life depended on it. Why? Because it was all up here. They have all this book knowledge, and yet when it came down to practically doing something with the knowledge they have, they can't do it. See, that's not wisdom. Wisdom is being able to take the knowledge that we have and put it to practical use. And see, by the time of Paul, the Jews had all this knowledge about God's word, and yet they weren't living it out. They weren't putting it to practical use. And so Paul was calling them on it. Sometimes we do that. You know, we sit in Sunday school class, we sit and hear a sermon, we listen to the Christian radio, we listen to Christian this, Christian that, TV, the whole thing, and we're taking it in, taking it in, we know all this stuff, but our life's a mess. And simply the reason is because we're not applying what we're learning. If we apply what we learn, then God can work that truth into our hearts and into our minds and make it wisdom, make it practical application. Well, what did they teach about the law? It says there in verse 19, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a, cho- a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. What did they teach about the law? See, they, they felt secure not only in what they knew about the law, but they felt secure in what they taught about the law because they did teach about the law. They considered themselves to be the most religiously wise people of the day. 
They weren't like the Gentiles who didn't even know the, the law of God. They kind of lifted themselves up on a pedestal. But what happened is Israel's continued unfaithfulness to God, they continued to disobey what they knew to be true. They were really disqualified as an example of someone who is a faithful teacher, someone who is a good example. They were supposed to be this to the Gentiles, and that's not what they did. They took the law of God, they put it in their head, not their heart, and so now they said, ha-ha, we know more than you do. Look at us, we're religious. Oh, by the way, stay away from us because we don't want to get unclean. We're God's favorites. You're not, sorry. And that was their attitude. And so what Paul does is he calls them out on that. He's basically calling them out on their hypocrisy. Jesus did this several times in Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Jesus said this to the religious leaders of the day. This would be like taking the Pope and a group of religious leaders and getting them together and saying these words to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on the sea and land and make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourself. What is, Paul, what is Jesus saying in that example? He's saying, look, yeah, you're teaching people. You've got converts flowing behind you, but you know what? You're all going to hell because you're missing the point. It's not about what you know, beloved. It's about what you apply to your life, about what you do in your life. Our salvation is not by works, but once we're saved, we should see some working of God in our heart, in our life. And that's what Jesus was saying to these religious leaders. He was saying, I don't see any of that. Yeah, you know everything. You got an answer for everything. You know, you're, you're, you're Mr. Mrs. Know-it-all. But when it comes to your life, you're not applying it. Instead of leading Gentiles to trust in the same God that they trusted in and to become obedient to his will, the Jewish leaders basically engulfed their converts, those who would follow them, and they put them in this religious, legalistic system of tradition. And they said, oh, if you want to be part of us, you have to do this. You have to dress this way. You can't do this. You can't do that. Does that sound familiar? That's what happens so many times in churches. Sometimes people call the church and they'll say, well, what's the service like on Sunday morning? I said, well, what, do you have a question? What's the question? Well, what do people dress like? I said, I don't know. I mean, they dress, you know, across, whatever. They dress however they want to dress. Well, do you have to wear a suit and tie? I said, well, you know, I have to, you know, wear a bathing suit if you want. I mean, you know, if you're a woman, hopefully it's appropriate and, and it's conservative, but I, I, I'm not up here, you know, I'm not the clothes police. We don't have people at the door checking what people are wearing. Well, what do you wear? Well, I wear a suit and tie because my wife makes me, usually. Today is an exception, but... And I said, you know what, when I think about it, I'm the only person in the whole church that usually wears a suit and tie. I, I don't know how I get rigged into this thing. But anyway. But, you know, that's not what the emphasis is. The emphasis is where is your heart? Where is your heart at? Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, we want to be appropriate. We should dress our best for Sunday. And, and you know, because, I mean, we dress our best probably for work or or, you know, California, California casual, at least something, you know, so I, I would assume that you wouldn't come in dirty 
torn up clothes unless that's all you had. And if it is, nobody's going to say anything. You know, we want to present our best for God. But on the other hand, just because you dress up, that doesn't make you the best. (laughs) Where is your heart? And so here Paul mentions these four areas. He says to be a guide for the blind. He points it out. He says, you know what? You're pretty confident in yourself that you're a guide to the blind. They thought they were the only ones that could see. They were the superior uh, mentors of the community when it comes to spiritual and, and moral matters. The Jews. That's what they thought. And they thought, you know, these poor Gentiles, they're just so spiritually blind. Look at them out there wandering around in the dark. But see, rather than go help them, they were arrogant. They had blatant hypocrisy. And Jesus charged them as being blind guides. Now stop and think about that, those two words. They just don't go together. I don't know about you, but I would not want a tour guide who was blind. Take me anywhere. I mean, how can he see what's coming up? How, I mean, it would just be a disaster. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus says. Yeah, you're leading people, but you know what? You're blind yourself. You don't know where you're going either. Far from being qualified to guide others, they themselves were in desperate need of guidance. Have you ever seen a blind person try to make themselves around? There's a lady here in Redwood City. She came to our church once um, to visit because we had a funeral. But um, she, I usually see her on the corner of over here on, on Jefferson. And she's got a dog, and she's, she's blind. She gets around all over the place. I mean, all over the place. It's just amazing. It's kind of like God gives them you know, hyper other senses so that they can make up for their lack of being able to see things. And I remember one time we went to a, uh, I think we were in the hospital, actually. It was a friend of Carol and Terry. And um, we were, I think we were waiting in the waiting room or something, and, and they have a friend that's blind. And, and I uh, sat down next to him. I don't think I said too, I don't think I said anything. And he said, oh, Pastor Steve, how's it going? I'm like, whoa, how's he know? How did he know that was me? You know, he just, maybe he heard somebody out. I don't know. It was just really odd. But sometimes blind people have an acute sense in other areas. But he's not saying that. He's saying, no, you're blind guides. You're trying to lead people and you can't lead them yourself. As a matter of fact, he says, you're trying to be a light to those in the darkness. Actually, they're precisely the role that God had intended Israel to be. That's what he wanted Israel to be originally. When he gave them the word of God, when he said, here, take this to all the nations, he wasn't saying take the word of God and kind of hoard it to yourself and pat yourself on the back saying, hey, I'm God's chosen people. No, he said, take it and share it with people. Be a light to those who are in the darkness. Tell them about your great creator, your creator God. Tell them how, how he can save. But that's not what they did. They did just the opposite. Jesus declared his disciples to be the light of the world. We're supposed to be the light of the world. And he charges them to put their light on the lampstand where it can be seen and, and do some good. Have you ever had a, a lamp at home that had a burned out bulb? This, it's, I mean, you might as well just either replace the bulb or throw the lamp out. Because it's not doing any good with a burned out bulb the same idea. You have to take a lamp and you have to elevate it so it it spreads light around the room. You don't take a lamp and put it in the corner and put a towel over it. The purpose of a lamp is to give light. That's what God has left us here. 
that we should let our light shine before men in a way that men would see our good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5. That's always been God's intention for his people. My question this morning is, is that happening in your life? When you leave these four walls, do people look at you and say, wow, there's something different about this? You know, they're not cheating like everybody else on their time card at work. What's different? Or they're, they're really putting themselves, they're putting others before themselves. That's kind of different. They don't seem so focused on just money and greed and everything. That's kind of different. Are you being a light in the darkness? And then he says thirdly there that they're a corrector of the foolish. They prided themselves in this as any intellectual person would. Even the the wisest of whom most Jews of the Gentiles, they considered them foolish. The wisest of the Gentiles. The Jew would just look at them and say, you're just a fool because you're a Gentile. They had an arrogance about them. And yet, Jesus pointed out that they were the fools. And then fourthly, the self-righteous Jew thought himself to be a teacher of the immature or the children, it says, the child. The idea is that of teaching very small, immature children. A child in the Jewish faith, as this text would say. And that term immature here represents maybe a Gentile who was a, a convert to Judaism. They did have converts to Judaism. They could leave their Gentile pagan religion, whatever it was, and convert to Judaism, just like any other faith. And when they did, they needed training. They needed teaching. They were like a child in the faith. They not only needed to learn God's law, but they also needed to rid themselves of all these pagan ideas that they had in their head. And so the Jew would step up to the plate and say, oh, we're going to take care of you. You know, We're going to show you all the, the truth that you need to know. It says that they, the law, the embodiment of truth and knowledge, it basically means an outline or a sketch, a semblance, an appearance. That's what Paul is saying. Don't just focus on somebody's outward, you know, religious superficiality. That's, that's the worst way to judge somebody. And that's what he's saying. He said, oh yeah, they, they kind of, you know, embraced all this stuff, but it really didn't do them any good. Well, what did they do in relationship to the law? Look at verse 21. What did they do in relationship to the law? They, they claimed to know it. They claimed to teach it. But here, they says basically that they fell way short. Look at verse 21 in our text. It says, you who teach others, he calls them out on it, do you not teach yourself? What's he saying? He's saying, you're not practicing what you're preaching. And then he gives some examples. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? See, just as Satan disguised himself, the Bible says, as an angel of light, Satan isn't some little you know, red thing with a pitchfork and horns and running around. Uh, no, that's not what Satan is. He's an angel of light. Sometimes false teachers teach the truth in their own selfish, perverse ways. That's why you can listen to certain teachers even on TV. And, and I've even had, heard people in our own church say, well, you know, that person doesn't sound that bad. No, you need to listen to them teach. Listen to what they're saying. Yeah, they have maybe 50% good, 50% bad. Maybe you're catching it when he's saying the quote in the Bible verse. 
But what, what else is he saying? It's very important that you take it in balance. And so he, he equates them to almost like the, the, the corrupt police official. You know, I, a lot of times when you see police driving around, they got their cell phone up to their ear. They're, they're talking on their cell phone while they're driving. I've heard people after, time after time say, oh, how can they do that? You know, they're breaking the law. They're supposed to be police and blah, 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 blah. It's almost, you know, the, you look at them as kind of a, a corrupt person if they're, if they're doing that. Or if you have a judge who basically doesn't uphold the law and just does whatever he wants, like we have in so many of our, our judges today. They kind of just, they don't go by their own, the, the law, they make up their own idea. And see, they had a greater responsibility. And because of their greater responsibility, they bring on greater punishment when they break the rules. That's the same way with Christianity. See, when you sit here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and you're, you're hearing what God is telling you to do and you're hearing the truth of God and, and it's, it's, you're, you're hearing it, it's coming into your mind. And yet when you walk out these doors, you're living something that's totally opposite. Don't think you're getting away with it. All you're doing is storing up greater wrath because God is saying, wait a minute, you can't stand before me one day and say, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't, nobody ever taught me that. No. Because you were taught it you have greater accountability to live by that standard. It's just like when you get a new job and you go in the first day, pretty much, you know, you're just there to kind of do whatever, follow, shadow somebody maybe, figure out what's going on. They don't put you behind a desk and say, okay, you know, we expect you to do all this stuff, you know, right away. No. Usually you, you go through a, a class, you go through an orientation, you get, you know, acquainted with everything and, and everybody around you, and then eventually, you know, the workload increases, and they notch it up, and then finally there's, you know, some form of, of review. And so we have to remind ourselves, beloved, when we, when we claim that we're Christians, are we living according to God's rules. If we're not, we're just adding to our judges or our judging in the future. And so he says here that a wicked teacher, basically hypocritical Jew, whatever you want to call him in, in Paul's context here, would often teach another person God's truth, but then he would fail to teach himself the same thing. It's kind of like the parent that says, you know what, son, you need to do what I say, not, not what I do. What a hypocrite. You really think your child is going to understand that? Oh, okay. Yeah, my dad drinks and smokes and cheats on, on mom, but uh, I guess I shouldn't do that because dad told me to. No, they're going to live by your example. And that's what he does. He turns it around on them. And he says, well, you, you teach others. Do you not teach yourselves? While you're preaching against stealing, do you steal? Obviously, the answer was yes, they were stealing. They were basically doing it in a very um, wrong way. Remember when Jesus cleaned the temple? Why did he have to do that? Because... All the people in there, the charlatans, were in there making money off of God's people. He didn't appreciate that. And then he relates the sexual sin. He says, you commit, say you shouldn't commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? Clearly, the Jews were doing that. 
And they set up a whole system that they could basically divorce their wife and work around the loophole of the law and all kinds of things. They were, they were connivers. That's why Jesus said everyone who looks after a woman with lust in his heart commits adultery. <laughs> See, he just takes it all away. He says, look, every, we're all on the same level here. We've all fallen in this area in somewhere in our heart or our mind. And then he says the third area here of hypocrisy is related basically to temples, temple worship. He says, do you abhor idols? Do you rob temples? And the idea there is that they were actually going into pagan temples and rather than condemning them and destroying them like God's word says they should do, what were they doing? They were going in and saying, hey, this stuff's worth some money. Let's, let's melt it down and, and we'll turn it in for some cash. And God strictly forbid them to do that. Um, any graven image in, in the Jewish mindset was wrong. Deuteronomy 7.25, it says, The graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. That's a pretty clear commandment from God, what they should do when they come across a pagan temple. And yet, because of the enticement of the wealth of the gold that was there in those pagan temples, they said, well, you know, I'm sure God understands. We're going to take this and boil it down and turn it in for some, turn it into cash or whatever and, and use it for good. I've known some Christian people that think somehow that's good. I heard a testimony one time of a guy that owned a, owned a nightclub, we'll say, in Las Vegas. It wasn't a very appropriate place for a Christian to own. And very successful. And the club actually got busted by the DEA because there was all this drug uh, trading and selling and everything, illegal, illicit drugs going on in this thing. And they interviewed this guy. And he literally said in the interview, I'm a Christian man. I use all, all that I make on this, this uh, uh, what do you call it? He didn't call it a nightclub. He's his little business venture, I think he called it. Um, I use it for the work of the Lord. See, I mean, he was, he was sadly mistaken. And there's a lot of people that, that somehow come to that conclusion. Well, you know, I'm just going to cheat a little bit in this area of my finances, and I'm sure God understands because that would give me more to, to maybe help out some other people. No. We're to do things correctly. We're to do things right before the Lord. Well, what caused, what happened when they, 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 when, what they caused by breaking God's law? What happened to them? It says in verse 23, and this kind of gets into the confusing part of this text, and so we're just going to spend a couple minutes here, but hopefully you'll understand what Paul is saying. In verse 23, he says, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. He says, For it is written, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What is he saying? He's saying to the Jews of that day, every time you go out and you do what you're doing, you teach what you're teaching, you live the way you're living by this two-standard hypocritical thing, self-righteousness, all this stuff, you give God a bad name. That's what he's saying. Why would the Gentiles look to you for any kind of light? Why would the Gentiles look to you for any kind of truth? Because every time they look at you, they just see this big legal system 
religious system of, of, of legalism that you're putting on the, the backs of the people. They have to follow all of these rules and then they'll be righteous somehow, which is not what God's word says. It's kind of like Christians who go out in the world and live like the world and then come to church on Sunday and somehow think that God is going to bless that. He says in verse 23, you, you boast in the law, but dishonor God. I often tell people, man, if you're going to come to church, that's great. If you're going to leave here saying that you go to that, go to this church and, on a regular basis, that's fine. If you call yourself a Christian, okay. The only thing I ask of you is that you live up to your calling. I don't, I don't want people... <laughs> coming to church thinking somehow just because they come to church when they leave this building and that's what it is it's just a building this isn't a holy place it's just a building a gathering of God's people when we leave this place that somehow you can do whatever you want whenever you want the last time I checked the Bible says that we were bought with a price we're not our own we're Christ and we need to hear that loud and clear today because I'd say probably 85% of the church is living by their own agenda. They're living what fits into their schedule. They're living what works best for them. And that's where their Christianity stops. When it becomes inconvenient, well, then that's, oh, okay, I draw the line there. It's kind of cutting into my work schedule. It's cutting into my family time. It's cutting into this. It's cutting into that. It's cutting into my leisure time. I mean, that's hard to hear sometimes, but it's the truth. And so when you're out in the world, people look at you and they go, well, you're no different than us. You do the same things we do. Except we notice on Sundays your car leaves your driveway and you go to some church somewhere. Big deal. By doing that, you're really dishonoring the name of God. You're blaspheming, it says, the name of God among the unbelieving community in which you live. I don't know about you, but as a Christian, I don't want that on my back. I don't want that on my head. See, these hypocritical Jews were blatantly breaking the law of God, and they were doing so proudly. And when they did so, they dishonored God. Every sin dishonors God. Psalm 51, David confessed, Against thee and thee only I have sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. Quoting out of Isaiah 52, 5, Paul strongly rebukes these hypocritical Jews, says that the name of God is blasting among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. I don't know about you, but I don't want that to be the situation with people in our church or in our community or anywhere for that matter. If you're going to do that, if you're going to play that game, don't call yourself a Christian because you're probably not. Definitely don't tell people you come to this church. I don't want people to know you come to this church if you're living a double life. If Christ isn't number one in your life, if you're not living for him each and every day, we're not talking about self-righteousness. We're talking about Christ-righteousness. See, these people here were 
fairly contaminating the world in which they lived. <clears throat> Spiritual contamination. They were guilty of deception. We've seen that they were guilty of desecration. They were guilty of even destruction. And by their false profession, they destroyed the credibility of God in their, in their, their community. The last thing here, quickly, is they not only had an assurance in their heritage and in the knowledge that they had, <clears throat> but lastly, in the, they had a false assurance of ceremony. I just want to touch on this quickly. It says here, basically, that the whole thing with circumcision came down to this religious right. It's kind of like baptism in the Protestant church, you could say. Some denominations, even in Protestant, in the the Protestant faith, look at baptism as some kind of a, a passage to salvation. And that's really what circumcision became. And so Paul tries to straighten them out here, and, and we're just going to touch on this. But it says in verse 25, For circumcision in, indeed is of value if you obey the law. It's just like getting baptized. baptized. Baptism is of no value. There's no holy water here. We don't have anything that has nothing to do with your salvation. It's just the idea that you were saved by God's grace, and you want other people to understand that. And so by doing that, you're following the Lord in the waters of baptism. You're coming before a congregation of people or the public and saying, hey, I'm being baptized just like Jesus was. And the reason I'm doing it is because now I am a follower of Jesus. And I just want you to know that. I want you to put you on notice that my life is going to be different from here on out. That's what baptism was. That's what circumcision was. It set the people of God apart from anybody else. And there's a lot to be said about this, and we don't have time here this morning. But I want you to understand, as important as it was, circumcision was only an outward symbol, just like baptism is. It's just a symbol. And rather than freeing Jews from God's law, circumcision really made them even more responsible for obeying it. Because you can understand Think about it. If you stand up here in this baptismal and you get baptized and you give a testimony of how God changed your life and you have family and friends sitting out there listening to your testimony and then you go home and there's no difference in your life. You're treating them just like you treated them before and you're angry and mad at the world and nothing has changed. Does this mean anything? It means absolutely nothing. Same thing with circumcision. Just because you're circumcised doesn't mean you're some kind of spiritual giant. I mean, today there's a lot of health reasons involved and everything, but that all aside, here we're talking about the religiosity of it. And it became almost kind of like this this sacrament that they had. Well, you have to be circumcised. And the reason is, is not because you've had a change of heart. No. Simply because... They were just looking at it as an outward thing that they do. That's why he says here in the text, he says, so if the man who is uncircumcised, let's put in the word baptism here just so we understand that we can kind of relate it to today. So if the man who is unbaptized keeps the precepts of the law, in other words, somebody who's not ever been baptized, all right, 
but he is doing what God wants him to do. Will not his unbaptism be regarded as baptism? In other words, just because somebody hasn't gone through these waters, that doesn't make him a Christian. So maybe they've had a change of heart. Maybe God has saved them, and they're living differently before the world. They're living differently in their workplace. They're diff- living differently in their church. And everybody's going, man, that guy's different. We don't go, well, wait, he hasn't been baptized. He can't be different. No. See, there, there's no, there's no, there's no uh, connection here. He says he becomes un, unbaptized. So if a man who is unbaptized keeps the precepts of the law, will not his unbaptism be regarded as circumcision? In other words, as baptism. In other words, if somebody who's not baptized lives like a Christian should live, you might say, wow, that person must have gotten baptized, even though they never did. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you if you have the written code and circumcision but break the law. What's he saying? Just because you go through baptism, all right, using that illustration, just because you go through baptism and then you live like the world, what are you doing? You're being a bad testimony to everybody. That baptism is not going to save you. But somebody who hasn't been baptized, and yet they're living for Christ each and every day, and people see a difference in them, difference in them, they're saying, wow, okay, that person's changed. What's God doing? God's saying, whether you're baptized or not, I regard you as righteous if you've come to Christ and if you're living for him on a daily basis. For no one, look at what he says in verse 28, is a Jew who, will, who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical. You could relate the same thing to baptism. Just because you go through a tub of water doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian? The fact that God changed your heart. Baptism is a response to God changing somebody's heart, to transforming their life, to to causing them to follow Christ. That's what baptism, baptism is. It's an outward sign of an inward change. The same thing with circumcision. It was an outward sign of an inward change. That's what it's meant to be. That's why he says there, but a Jew is one inwardly. Whether you come to church or not, whether you're baptized or not, whether you call yourself a Catholic, a Methodist, a Baptist, born again, crazy, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Where is Christ in your heart? That's what matters. All those external things are irrelevant. What matters is, has God saved you? Are you a Christian inwardly? We started off this little series here in chapter 2 saying that God doesn't look at the outward appearance. Man does, but God looks at what? He looks at your heart. And that's what he says here. And that's why at the end of verse 29, he says, it's a matter of the heart by the Spirit. That's the only way anyone is ever saved not by the letter of the law. And notice, his praise is not from man, but from God. What were the Jews doing? They were looking for the praise from men. That's what they were doing. They were performing. That's why I said earlier, we're not here to perform. We don't want to come here and act like a bunch of religious people performing for everybody. That's not our heart. I mean, this is the place of all places. If you're having a bad week, you should be able to come into this place. And when someone says, how are you doing today? You don't have to paste a little smile on your face and say, oh, praise Jesus, I'm doing fine. When inside, you're broken. 
This is the place you should be able to come and say, you know what, I had a really rotten week, and I could use some encouragement this morning. I could use some prayer. I'm hoping God will turn this thing around. Whatever it is, this is the place where transparency starts. But unfortunately, so many churches, this is the place where you walk through that door. That's where transparency stops. And we're little cookie-cutter, smiley-faced Christians where everything's happy, happy, happy in Jesus. When that's not the reality. Some of you are struggling with major things in your life right now. Only God knows. But until you become humble, until you're willing to share that with God first, and then with other brothers and sisters in Christ who can share that burden with you, you're on your own. And that's not how the church is to operate. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we thank you that you haven't called us to just knowledge, just to get more knowledge about you. You haven't called us to be part of some religious society here at Grace Bible Church. Um, You haven't told us that we have to do certain things before you will love us more. We know that, God, you judge us according to the truth. Will you judge us according to our performance? You judge us according to what we do in light of what we know about you. And yet, even with that standard there, we're all condemned before you because we could never do enough to negate our sin. And I know that if we are to be saved, it has to be by the work of of only one that has done it, Jesus Christ, and who can apply it to us by the Father through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray this morning, if there's any here this morning who is yet to put their faith or trust in you, Lord, that somehow you would do that work in their heart, in their life, that you would call them to yourself, that you would allow them to understand their need of a Savior. Father, we pray that they would be willing to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me this way of salvation. Help me to commit myself into your care. And for us Christians, Lord, I pray that we would take seriously our faith, that it wouldn't just be some easy armchair grace kind of life that we can do whatever we want because that's not what you've called us to do. It says that we need to deny ourselves to follow you. In other words, we need to do things that sometimes feel uncomfortable, sometimes cut into our schedule, sometimes push us to the brink. That's trusting God. That's living the Christian life the way it was to be lived. Every Christian that followed Christ left something to do so. Most of them left careers and families and loved ones behind to follow Christ. Ask yourself this morning, as a Christian, what have you left behind? Or is life just going on as normal? Thank you, Lord. We pray that you bless our time and fellowship afterwards. That you bless the food to our bodies and thank you for those preparing it. And Lord, that we just have a good time of fellowship. We thank you in Jesus' precious name.
Amen.